Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Rugby Lineout Podcast. So this week, I'm going to try and do things a little bit differently because the last two podcasts have actually run out of time. Uh, so I'm going to try not to do that this weekend. Um, obviously, the big talking point this weekend is the Six Nations finale on Super Saturday. Um, but I do want to make uh, mention of uh, uh, Super Rugby. Um, very quickly, and also Toronto, the Toronto Arrows' third game. So I'm going to start off with those two points first, because in every other, uh, the last two podcasts, I've actually run out of time, and I've said I'm going to talk about them, and then I don't, which is kind of unfair. So uh, I just wanted to mention, starting off with Super Rugby, uh, how much I enjoyed uh, that historic Fijian Drua win over the uh, Super Rugby defending champions from last year at the Crusaders. Um, that was just so much fun. Uh, that game, um, you know, first of all, that the Drua get to play at home in Fiji, and they get to do that six more times this season, which is going to be fabulous. But the atmosphere there was just electric. Um, you know, if you'd watched that game on Friday night, you were already in party mode by the time you woke up on Saturday to watch Wales um, play Italy. Um, I just, I, I can't remember the last time I had so much fun watching a Super Rugby game. Um, it was just, you know, the atmosphere in the stands was fantastic, and it was just a wonderful celebration of what this glorious game is all about. Everybody was just having so much fun, you know. Um, and all credit to the Crusaders, you know, they, they put up a, a, a serious contest. I mean, you know, uh, by, by all, all, uh, all, all intents, it was, it was, it was solid. So, but as a sporting spectacle that took some beating, um, you know, as everybody knows who listens to, to this podcast or, or reads my blog, you know, I've got a, a genuine sort of fanboy thing about the Drua, but I think it's more, it's based on just wanting to see a side from a country that clearly struggles with resources, but not talent, do well in a premier club competition like Super Rugby. And when they do so, like they did on Friday, it's heady stuff, and, and everybody loves the underdog. Um, you know, I know you can argue that the the conditions were tricky. You know, it was, it was really humid there, which made, you know, the whole game physically exhausting for both sides, ball handling difficult. Um, I don't buy into the argument that said, oh, well, you know, the Crusaders were missing some of their big guns like Richie Moanga. But, you know, there was still a significant contingent of All Blacks in there. There's David Havili, Sam Whitelock, Scott Barrett. So, you know, I think what I just loved about the Drua was they played with flair, passion and commitment and above all, absolute loyalty to that, that those delirious fans in the stands. It was, you know, rugby was the winner on, on the day in Latoka, and I just look forward to a lot more of it. And then the Arrows. Uh, great to see the Arrows finally get a win. Uh, only third games in. And like I said, I kind of reserve judgment on the Arrows each season um, until at least three games in. Because, you know, they play seven of their opening games on the road before they get home to Toronto and get to play in, in front of their own fans. So it's a tough one. You know, it's, it's kind of unique. And I think, you know, while you don't want to use that as an excuse... It, it kind of, to a certain degree, uh, explains their traditional slow start to the season. Um, but, you know, I think all, all that aside, I think that one point win over the Hounds um, on, uh, on Saturday, 
just showed how important uh, fly half Sam Malcolm is. Uh, you know, the Arrows have been lucky to get the Kiwi for his fifth consecutive season with the team. And he's just such a good investment. Uh, you know, he's the, despite Toronto losing their first two games, Malcolm is still the second highest point scorer in the league after um, four rounds. And his composure under pressure is just really impressive. And even if the team looks kind of frayed, his ability to kind of weld them together into some sort of shape uh, is impressive. He's got a real good eye for opportunity and ability to put players in space. And, you know, on top of that, his goal kicking is just razor sharp. Um, so, you know, uh, I know kicking points alone is not what is not what wins you a championship. But, you know, I think also, you know, Malcolm's speed of thought and decision making is is going to be a real asset to Toronto this uh, this season. So they're up against uh, Old Glory this weekend and hopefully they can kick on from that round three uh, win. So good luck to you boys uh, this weekend. But yeah, the Six Nations, uh, what a weekend we had. Uh, probably one of the most high stakes round fours we've seen in a very long time. Uh, Wales got us started in Rome. And, you know, I think the big thing with Wales is, you know, as they were kind of, you know, staring down the barrel of, of another wooden spoon, or not another wooden spoon, but a, of, a, of a wooden spoon on Friday night in their preparations for for the game they knew that you know a win in rome was critical to breathing life back into this team and you know the thing about wales is they're one of those teams that still makes them one of the best teams they know how to find the strength as a unit to fight their way out of such dark places and their performance last saturday in rome was exactly that it wasn't perfect but it was a team playing for each other and in the process remembering that despite all the turmoil back in wales this is a game they'd love to play together and for each other um, I don't think it's going to be enough to get them past France this weekend, but at least it put a smile back on their faces. And in, in the process, the mental strength to face a pretty daunting final game in Paris. Wales may be down, but they're definitely not out yet. And build on that performance in Rome and at least be competitive in Paris this weekend. And the tough task of building for the World Cup sep come September can, can be approached with some degree of optimism. I think for Italy, it was almost as if the desire to win was just too overwhelming. They were just filled with ambition and kept trying to play just too much rugby and be too clever. And as a result, it just tripped them up almost every time. Um, there was no lack of enterprise from the Italians, but they just simply couldn't finish off the moves. You know, if, if there ever was a time to slow it down and keep it simple, that game in Rome was a case in point for Italy on Saturday. You know, I think although the promise of what they can do has finally started to take shape, the Six Nations, they still have this tendency to overcomplicate things. I mean, their handling error count, which was already the highest in the competition, went through the roof on Saturday. And the number of times I just like look away as yet another rush pass or kick chase was butchered was was really frustrating. The way I kind of look at that game is, you know, Italy didn't play a bad game and Wales didn't play a brilliant game, but the Welsh were the more patient of the two and it paid huge dividends. You know, Italy did almost twice as much as Wales, particularly in practically every statistic, but with only a 50% success rate. You know, and, and the the Welsh, by comparison, especially as the game wore on, they just fed off Italy's mounting error count and took their own chances in a much more composed uh, and measured fashion. I thought Welsh scrum half uh, Reese Webb made an extraordinary return to Test rugby, and I, you know, surely Coach Warren Gallon was wondering why he'd fallen out of favour in the first place. 
Um, for both teams this weekend, Italy really daunting trip to Murrayfield to face a wounded Scottish side um, who will de- be desperate to prove that they're not in danger of reverting to type and fizzling out of the Six Nations once more after a promising start. But there is that threat, and as a result, there's still an outside chance that just like last year, um, Italy could pull off a big surprise for the final round. I, I don't think it'll be the case, but it's there. Wales, I think they'll be boosted by that win, but they must have watched France's demolition of, of the English with serious alarm. Uh, beating a feisty Italian side in Rome is one thing. Beating the world's second-best team, who now appear to be in full song, is another thing altogether. And in front of a packed stade de France, oof, I don't fancy that one. Uh, so I think I would say the contest with the wooden spoon is, is still very much alive and will keep us in suspense until Nick Berry blows the final whistle in Paris. Uh, then next up, we had an amazing game from the French against England. Uh, if you were a French supporter and neutral, you'd have found Saturday's proceedings just a glorious exposition of, you know, the beauty of the modern game. If you're an England supporter, you probably you probably spent most of, of Saturday afternoon looking over the top of the couch in sheer horror and probably with a very stiff drink in your hand. Um, France are magnificent in every aspect and any doubts about whether or not they're genuine contenders to lift the Webb Ellis trophy in the Stade de France on October 28th. I think you can put those uh, in the dustbin once more. England know in though that for them, where do you begin? They, they have a ridiculously short and painful five months ahead of them in which to get them even close to the point where they can be, you know, genuinely competitive once they leave the pool stages. And, you know, and that's assuming they even make it out of the pools alive, which on their present form is debatable. But I think, you know, for, for, for England, what really struck me was how unfit they looked. You know, before the game, everybody's saying, oh, well, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the French fitness can last uh, up against England for the full 80 minutes. I'd say it was the other way around. Uh, the French looked super fit. The English did not. Um, you know, and I think the other thing that was painfully obvious was just how porous that English defense is. Um, and it's not helped by their forwards being, they were, they were just completely outplayed at the breakdown by France, who, who just attacked and defended with speed and precision. You know, far too many English players were left isolated after a promising break with the rest of their teammates arriving far too late. Um, England were painfully slow at recycling the ball, keeping it moving, whereas the French were doing everything twice as fast, or if not three or four times. I mean, England's ruck speed on Saturday was like six seconds. France was like two to three. Um, and, and then, you know, England just looked lethargic at times and France was just able to take their time resetting their defenses. Uh, England's handling errors kept building up as, as the game increasingly got away from them and, and France were there to pounce on every English misstep and Ireland will do the same this Saturday, make no mistake. But, you know, the other thing that really struck me with that game was Jack Van Poorfleet was not helped by his forward pack. Like, he would arrive admittedly late at the breakdown and then gets kind of bundled into the ruck by his forwards behind him. So he couldn't even get the ball out. It was just just messy. Uh, But, yeah, for France, it was just a faultless performance from start to finish. And, And one, I think, which reflects the standards that this remarkable team has to set for themselves for the World Cup. Um, Wales should be this weekend a relatively straightforward proposition for them uh, to finish off the campaign in style. I don't think they're in it for the silverware. I don't think that's that's even really a possibility. 
Um, the only way they can get their hands on the silverware is that that you know England somehow managed to pull one over and, on the Irish in, in Dublin on Saturday, which, yeah, I mean, miracles do happen, but that's what it would be is a, is a miracle. Um, but I think, you know, after watching Saturday's game, uh, I think you, you can't help get the feeling that the best is yet to come from France. Um, so the rest of the world, you have been warned. As for uh, Scotland-Ireland, wow, that was a bruising encounter. That was a tough, tough game. Um, and I think, you know, you have to take your hat off to Scotland. I think that first sort of 50 minutes, they put a titanic performance, even if the scoreline didn't really reflect it. But definitely a game of sort of of two halves. Um, you know, Scotland is, like I say, despite the scoreline, we're hugely competitive in the first half and played some really good rugby. Um, you know, in that first half, it was just intense. Both of those sides are going hammer and tongs at each other, and they're running from every perceivable corner of the pitch. It was thrilling, um, and it showed enormous enterprise and skill from both sides. However, you know, and as, as the injuries started to mount and the, the, you know, it looked like a battlefield out there, there were bodies everywhere. Um, and as that sort of casualty list kept mounting in the second half, Scotland kind of ran out of gas. Um, and once more, they started to chase the scoreboard as they did in Paris a fortnight earlier. And we all kind of know how that sadly tends to end for Scotland a lot of the time, except when they play England at Twickenham, ironically. Um, but I think, you know, despite a mounting casualty list on both sides, Ireland simply hunkered down and adapted to the crisis they were forced to deal with, whereas Scotland slowly but surely started to look reckless and flustered. Um, you could see it in Jamie Ritchie. He was the captain. He was starting to get really frustrated. Uh, and it was interesting as the game went on, um, Scotland started more to look a lot like Italy um, under pressure in the game against Wales the day before. Um, so it was very interesting that that these, you know, Scotland, Italy, who looked very similar uh, last weekend in, in how they kind of unraveled in both games, are now facing each other for their final game. But I think Ireland, by comparison, they just took a deep breath, focused on the task at hand. Um, and Scotland and, and Finn Russell, on the other hand, they just, you know, they played an increasing risky and rush game, I thought. I think that's a trend that Scotland simply have to fix come the World Cup to realize their full potential. You know, the skill and talent in this squad is exceptional, but just like Italy at times, it boasts an ambition that's either inappropriate, given the immediate situation they're faced with, or not backed by the skills needed in the heat of the moment. You know, Ireland always looked as if they had the measure of the game, and although, you know, they were audacious at times, their moves always boasted the skill set and preparation needed to make them fire. You know, as the game wore on, the same couldn't be said for Scotland. You know, with fullback Stuart Hogg and fly half and star playmaker Finn Russell ultimately succumbing to injury, Scotland were clearly starting to lose their cohesion. As for Ireland, I think they'll look at Sunday's game as a remarkable achievement. As an exercise in depth and crisis management, Ireland excelled. To lose both your hookers is every coach's nightmare in one game. But somehow Ireland took it all in their stride. Kean Healy proved once more that Test Centurions have their value and then some. Um, as he made an outstanding shift to being a test-level hooker by necessity. Uh, World Player of the Year, Josh Vandefleer, made a pretty solid effort at throwing line-out darts. And, you know, in response to injuries, the bench really rose to the occasion. You know, Ryan Baird coming in for Ian Henderson, Jack Conan coming in for Kalen Doris, Robbie Henshaw coming in for Gary Ringrose. They all stood up. 
and Jamison Gibson Park, you know, despite his long layoff from injury, he just, once he came off the bench, he just looked as though he ate his time on the sidelines hadn't caused him to miss a beat whatsoever. The one negative of that game, and it's been a consistent theme throughout the Six Nations and in, to a certain degree last the end of last year as well, Ireland will still be concerned with the number of tackles they're missing. 27 compared to Scotland's 11. But their phenomenal success rate at turning the ball over is managing to compensate for that. So, you know, they, they're covering it by just being so ruthlessly efficient and effective at the breakdown and turning the ball over. Um, but it's an issue that just has to get addressed ahead of the World Cup. And unfortunately, I don't think England are likely to give them much of a workout in that department this Saturday. As they look ahead to this weekend, Scotland will want to end what's been, for all intents and purposes, one of their most positive Six Nations campaigns in recent memory, despite the two back-to-back losses. However, a a solid win over Italy uh, tomorrow is absolutely key in ensuring that they carry some formidable momentum into a challenging World Cup pool. For Ireland, a grand slam beckons. um, And despite the the missed tackle count, I think all the rest of Ireland's development goals for the Six Nations and building towards the World Cup, providing they dispatch England on Saturday, will have been met and then some. So let's look ahead to the games this weekend. Starting off, we get uh, Scotland and Italy uh, kicking things off in Murrayfield tomorrow morning. Um, obviously, I you know I never say die, but my money's definitely on Scotland to tomorrow uh, to take it. Um, I think one of the key areas for both sides tomorrow, though, is going to be the set pieces. Both sides are giving away the most scrum penalties in the competition. Uh, with Italy notching it a bit more. So, you know, the uh, giving away more penalties, slightly more than Scotland. So Scotland will be keenly aware of that and looking looking to sort of kind of, you know, utilize, especially as their front row is very settled for this match, whereas Italy have chopped and changed a bit. Uh, on the flip side, though, Italy's line-out has been superlative this tournament, and it's worked pretty well for most of the campaign. Uh, whereas Scotland, unfortunately, you know, with all the changes in their second rows, their lineout has started to deteriorate quite dramatically in their last few matches, and they'll they'll need to fix that. So yeah, we will see how it goes. Um, obviously, in the lineups, um, yeah, some some exciting stuff. Um, so for for Scotland, uh, some enforced changes once more in in the second row uh, and the back row, um, and also in the backs. Ollie Smith from Glasgow Warriors comes in at fullback for the injured Stuart Hogg. Excited to see him get on. I mean, he's a he's a impressive player. Uh, the wings stay the same with Stane Evandermerver in the centres, Jones and Tuapalatu. Uh, Blair Kinghorn slots in at 10 for the injured fly, uh, injured Finn Russell. A lot of people seem unhappy with that. We'll see how that works out. Uh, ben White keeps his spot, his spot in the nine jersey. Jack Dempsey keeps his spot at number eight. With Matt Fagerson on the bench, i got to be honest, I would prefer to see Matt Fagerson start. But we'll see how that goes. Uh, Hamish Watson comes in, Jamie Ritchie uh, as captain. Like I say, he needs to kind of monitor his frustration a bit. Um, Johnny Gray and Sam Skinner, more changes in the the second row due to the uh, injury to Ritchie Gray. And then a stable front row, Xander Fagerson, George Turner, Pierre Schumann, with Turner really having to work on his line-out throwing. 
excellent bench for Scotland. Ewan Ashman, Rory Southern, WP Nell, Scott Cummings, Matt Fagerson, already talked about him, Ali Price, Ben Healy, very interesting. Um, the Munster fly half is now qualified to play for Scotland. Uh, I think Ireland will rue losing him, but it'll be interesting to see if he gets any time on the bench and see how he gets on. And also Cameron Redpath. For Italy, lots of enforced changes as well. Uh, Tommy Allen keeps his spot uh, in the in the back at 15. Pierre Bruno uh, keeps his spot on the wing, though he really needs to up his uh, tackle rate. And Simo <coughs> excuse me, as impressive as he is on attack. And Simone Gesi, uh, Gesi gets his chance to uh, star on the wing, his debut, and show... Uh, that the sparkle that he has in an otherwise losing cause, i.e. Zebra Parma, uh, can translate to test level. Solid center pairing with Brex and uh, Menoncello, who looked really good last weekend. Uh, Paolo Cabisi with Alessandro Fusco coming in at scrum half for Varney. Lorenzo Canoni, Michele Lamaro, Sebastian Negri, no change there. And that's a phenomenal back row for Italy. They just need to tone down the ambition. Uh, Edward Eduardo Iacchisi comes into the second row. And uh, with Niccolo Canoni sitting this one out on the bench, uh, alongside Federica Ruzza, who is uh, a line-out master of note. And at fourth change, Riccioni comes in for the injured, uh, or I'm not sure whether he was injured or not, but Simone Ferrari. And uh, otherwise, Nicotera and Fischetti. And Fischetti has been phenomenal. Uh, that's front row stays the same. Not too thrilled with the Italian bench, apart from Canoni. Um, Alessandro Garbisi, uh, Garbisi's brother at Scrum Half, and Luca Morisi. But yeah, we'll see how that all works out. But like I say, my money's on, on Scotland. Next up, France versus Wales in Paris. Um, you know, France just have to play like they did at Twickenham, and this should be a pushover for them. Wales... You know, um, I don't think, you know, even despite what's going on in Wales, Wales um, are no strangers to, to you know, they know how to win in Paris when they've basically been written off. So I wouldn't write them off completely, but this is a pretty tough ask. Um, like I say, the, the win in Rome was great, but, you know, Wales' uh, break, speed at the breakdown is just, you know, so slow compared to France. And I think France are going to punish them that way. It's, uh, there'll be a lot of kicking involved. <coughs> Excuse me, my voice is starting to go again. There'll be a lot of kicking involved. Uh, Dan Bigger gets brought in to uh, deal with that uh, based on his experience which I think is kind of harsh on Owen Williams, who I thought had a pretty good game against Italy, but we'll see how that works out. And Bigger hasn't had that much game time under his belt lately. So it be interesting to see how long he stays on before he gets subbed off for Williams. But yeah, uh, the teams themselves, uh, very few changes for France. Uh, their backs are all the same from 9 to 15. Ramos, Peno, Fiku, Jonathan Dante, who I thought made a superb return from injury. Dumortier uh, and Tamak, who his, his partnership with Dupont really is starting to click again. And Intimac definitely back to some of his formidable form against England. 
excuse me. And then uh, back row, Gregory Aldrich, Charles Olivon, Francois Crow, Crow coming in, who I thought excelled last weekend. Um, so, yeah, a big game expected from those three. Taufanua and Thibaut Flamand in the second row. Taufanua, the only change there. Flamand remains one of the Six Nations' basically key tackling machines. Uh, Antonio comes into the front row, which I think is pretty harsh on Dorian Allegri, who I thought had a really good game last weekend against England. I personally think Antonio is definitely a bit of a disciplinary liability, but we'll see. And then Marshall and Cyril Bai alongside him in the front row, who were just immense last weekend. Great-looking bench from the French. Uh, I don't mean to diss referees, but I will say I'm not thrilled that uh, Nick Berry is the referee for this one from Australia. He's, I think, one of the most indecisive refs in the game, but we'll see how he gets on. For Wales, interesting positional shift. Louis Rees Zamet uh, comes into the um, fullback spot. Uh, interesting, he hasn't played that much at fullback, so we'll see how that goes on. Josh Adams and Rio Dyer uh, continue out wide, and they've been impressive. George North, Nick Tompkins, full change in the centers. Definitely big old George North to try and shut the French down and deal with Jonathan Dante and Nick Tompkins' guile. Although his, uh, yeah, I think there is some defensive liabilities there. We'll see how it gets on. Dan Bigger, I've already talked about. Uh, Reese Webb is deservedly getting another shot. Talupe Falatau makes his 100th cap for Wales this weekend. And then Justin Tipperich uh, alongside him, along with Aaron Rainwright, who we haven't seen for a while, but I do rate. Elwin Jones, Adam Beard make the second row, and the front row remains unchanged. Just like to give a big shout out to Ken Owens, who captains again this game, and I thought he did a great job against Italy. And a very touching moment at the end of that game where he walks off the pitch with his arm around uh, fellow Italian captain Michele Lamaro. He knows what a dark place that can be when, when uh, especially you know Italy really feeling that loss, and it was it was a touching moment. So all credit to him and good job done. And then it's the big one: Ireland chasing the Grand Slam. Uh, in Dublin, um, Jakob Piper is the ref. Um, you know, there's not really much to say about this one. It's pretty hard to see England um, England get a win. I think, um, you know, Ireland's only possible weak point is their missed tackle count, but then uh, England have no attacking plans, so... I don't know. I can't really see that being that much of a liability on Saturday. Um, as in terms of the players, obviously everybody's is tipping Ireland to get the job done and uh, lift the trophy and claim the Grand Slam with it. Um, and really, to be honest, based on their form and England's form, why not? So, yeah, the teams uh, for Ireland, Robbie Henshaw is starting alongside Bundy Aki. And I'd always say that's a pretty effective partnership. Those two seem to really work together in the centers. Uh, but meanwhile, James Lowe, Mac Hansen, Hugo Keenan in the backs, who have just been phenomenal. Johnny Sexton, obviously, captains, captains this one. It's going to be a very emotional moment for him, probably his last Six Nations game in Dublin. You could see in France, he was getting pretty teary during the anthems. So, yeah, I think this is this is going to be 
he's going to really want to end this one on a high. Jamison Gibson Park, after his uh, star turn off the bench against um, Scotland last weekend, he starts. Kalen Doris is back in the mix, judge fit. Not 100% sure that him and Dan Sheehan are as fit as they need to be. We'll see after their injuries last weekend, but we'll see. Josh Vandefleer, Peter Omani, they were fantastic. James Ryan, uh, like I say, Ryan Baird comes in for Ian Henderson. In the second row, Tide Furlong, Dan Sheehan, Andrew Porter, all looking pretty good. Um, and in the bench, Rob Herring comes in as their replacement hooker. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how long uh, Sheehan lasts. Uh, Kean Healy's obviously back. Tom O'Toole. Kieran Treadwell gets a shot off the bench. Jack Conan, Connor Murray, Russ Byrne, Jimmy O'Brien. Looks pretty good. England, uh, relative, some changes. Freddie Stewart, Anthony Watson are there in the backs uh, and alongside Henry, Henry Arundel finally gets a start. It'd be really interesting to see what he can inject into England's attack. Um, and then we have Henry Slade, Manu Tuolagi. Slade's simply got to step up and I'm not sure that Tuolagi can get the job done either. Owen Farrell starts at 10. Uh, still doubts about the Farrell-Smith access. Jack Van Portfleet really needs to speed up at scrum half. Alex Dombrandt, Jack Willis, Lewis Ludlam. That stays the same. Surprising given a relatively poor performance from Dombrandt last week. Um, and then, yeah, David Ribbons. Happy to see him get a start in the second row. Maro Toje's really turning it on. Not that thrilled with that English front row apart from Ellis Genge. Uh, I think Sinclair and George were out of their depth last week, and I think they will be again this weekend. And then the bench, yeah, Marcus Smith, Alex Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell, I didn't think, had the best game last weekend. And that's pretty much it. Vinopola's in, Jack Walker, Dan Cole, Nicky Sakewa, and Joe Marchant. And I'm just about to run out of time. So enjoy the games. It should be great. And uh, have a great weekend. We will talk to you soon.